Uh, so the, the other day, and this will probably not come as a surprise to many of you, um, I, was, um, I was making bread. Um, that's what I was doing. Um, and, and at this time, I had an, an iron pot that I put into the oven, into a really hot oven. I put it up to about 250 degrees was the oven, really, really hot, got it really hot. And then and when the bread was, was ready to go in, I took out the pot, took off the lid, uh, put the bread into the pot, and all I had to do was put the lid back on and get it back in the oven to bake. Um, but in order to put the bread into the pot, I had taken off my oven gloves. Um, and I was maybe distracted, I wasn't thinking, but I grabbed the lid to put it back on. I dropped it very quickly, I burnt my hand quite badly. It was stupid, very, very silly. I was not thinking about what I was doing. Now, the, the next time I come to make bread like that, and I put the pot in the oven to get hot, please, please don't tell me the answer to this question, but think, what would you say to me if I did exactly the same thing again? Exactly the same thing. And then I did it again, and again, and again. Every time I did the same thing, what would you say to me? Please don't tell me. I don't think I could take it. Um, what, what would you say? The thing is, what if we were doing something like that every day? Not just to hurt our hands, but to hurt our eternal souls. That would be silly, wouldn't it? Very, very silly indeed. And wouldn't we want to know? Wouldn't we want somebody to tell us? I think we would. Well, this morning we are beginning um, to look at the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah. Uh, You see the first verse there, if you've got it open in front of you. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. This is a huge book in the Bible. Um, Isaiah was preaching these messages over decades. Um, and so we're not going to rush through them. Um, in the front page of the journal, you'll see there's some timelines just to position uh, what we read about in Isaiah in events in history and in the timeline of the Bible. Um, you might have seen as well, um, I sent out in the week, a, um, a summary of Isaiah in Lego. Um, if you didn't get to see that and you'd like to, um, let me know and I can send it out to get an overview of the book in Lego. Who wouldn't want to see that? Um, uh, tell me afterwards if you want to have a look. Now, as we go through Isaiah, we're going to pick up various themes uh, in different ways, different times. Um, but just very broadly speaking, very, very broadly speaking, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are a book of warning. Uh, the messages in these chapters, they come during two great uh, kind of political crises um, of those times. The first one comes under the reign of King Ahaz. Uh, he was not a good king. Uh, and when Ahaz was king of Judah, the, the kind of superpower of the day was Assyria, the nation of Assyria. Uh, and they were bullying all the nations around, threatening all the nations around. And for Ahaz, he had this question of, should he be kind of pro or anti-Assyria? And Isaiah Uh, speaks into that and he says, no, really, the question that matters is not whether you're pro or anti-Assyria, but are you pro-God? And Ahaz was not, sadly. And then after him, Hezekiah was king. And Hezekiah was mostly a good king, um, but Assyria was still threatening. And and Hezekiah had this political question, should he seek help from the Egyptians or, or, or maybe the nation of Babylon, a kind of rising power on the world scene? And, and Hezekiah was mostly good, but he, he got swept up into that fight for security. And, and Isaiah's message is, are you going to trust men, or are you going to trust God? 
Disaster is looming in these first 39 chapters, and the Lord brings a message of warning. But then the second half of the book, chapter 40 to 66, is a book of comfort. You see, that these chapters look ahead to when disaster has struck and the people have been decimated. Now, what does the Lord say to a decimated people? Well, Isaiah 40, verse 1 says, Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly. That's what God says to a decimated people. A book of comfort. That's the second half. And we are a little away, away from that today. We're at the beginning. Right at the very, very beginning. And we're going to get to Isaiah 6 um, at some point in the next few months. Um, Isaiah 6 is when he was called to be a prophet. It's a very significant chapter in the book. Um, And it seems that the first five chapters are messages selected in order to set the scene for Isaiah's call into his prophetic ministry. Now, now as we look at Isaiah, what Isaiah is going to do for us, he's going to show us the astonishing greatness of God. He's going to help us kind of look into the staggering depths of God's character and, and the, just the unshakable majesty of his power and the, the unmeasurable stretch of his mercy. And see, the question I think that goes through all of Isaiah is, what is God really like? What is he really like? And I think the answer we will find is that he is always more than we can grasp. Uh, a guy called Tozer. He wrote this. He wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He went on to write, all the problems of heaven and earth, though they were to confront us together and at once, would be nothing compared with the overwhelming problem of God. That he is. What he is like. And what we as mortal beings must do about him. Well, Isaiah will cause us to wrestle with that overwhelming problem. To wrestle with it until we are undone and redone. Begins in this first passage, Isaiah 1 verses 1 to 9. Uh, This passage which is packed full of kind of provocative pictures. This is a passage that kind of keeps jabbing you in the ribs. It's trying to get your attention, trying to shake those who hear. Should we begin? Verse 2. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. The heavens and earth, all of creation is being called to witness what God is about To say, because this is a time of reckoning. It's a sad moment. The heavens and earth have been called as witnesses long before Isaiah. Way, way back, there was a time when the people of God were were, um, under heavy oppression in Egypt. And, And under oppression of slaves in Egypt, the Lord himself came to rescue them. He rescued them by his grace and by his mercy. And he brought them out to belong to himself. And he promised to give them a place. He said he would give them a land that would be their own. It would be a home. A home where they could live and enjoy all of his blessings. And and as the people of God traveled to that place, on the eve of their arrival into the promised land, Moses, the servant of God, preaches a sermon. You can read about it in the Bible. It's the book of Deuteronomy, the sermon that Moses preached on that eve of the entry into the promised land. 
And at the climax of that sermon, it says this. This day, today, I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him for the Lord is your life. God's crying out to his beloved people and he's saying, I have saved you and I've loved you and I want you to live. I want you to have the most of life. Now choose life. But what happens when people don't choose life? That'd be silly, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be really silly to be offered life and death and to say no to life? Why would anybody do that? Why would you say no to life? Well, Isaiah begins recalling the gospel invitation in Deuteronomy. And then just the sad unfolding of history means that a time of reckoning has come. And those ancient witnesses are called again, heaven and earth, for the Lord has Spoken. It's probably helpful for us just to think, how do we hear this now? Now, in our time, in this moment, on this day. Well, that great appeal of Deuteronomy to choose life. It's the same appeal that the Lord Jesus made when he said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And, and, and Jesus said, I am the way. And I am the truth and I am the life. Jesus holds out life, the full life, the maximal life. And I need to have my batteries changed. Brilliant. Jesus holds out the offer of life. Is this not on? It is on. Great. Good. Jesus holds out the offer of life to all who will have it. All who believe on him, he says, will have eternal life. Jesus says, choose life. And the same question then comes to us. What happens when people don't choose that life? Now, the time of reckoning that begins in, in verse 2 of our passage is one that will catch up with all of us sooner or later. Now, what will we have to say when the Lord asks us, why didn't you take life? Why didn't you choose life when it was offered you in Jesus? What were you thinking? Well, let's look at what the Lord has spoken. I think in our passage, there are three things that he says about refusing the life that he offers. The first one in verse 2 and 3 is that to refuse life is crazy. See what he says? The Lord has spoken I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. God is speaking. And when God rescued his people from Egypt, he said, this is my son. You let my son go. God wants the people to understand he relates to them as a father, a loving, caring, perfect, providing, protecting, leading father who has given them so much good. Now, when all children kick against their parents, push the limits, Israel has done that and the Lord has been a good father. He's disciplined them, he's helped them, he's taught them. He's always been merciful, he's always been gentle. But on this day of reckoning, 
God is saying they have done what the prodigal son did. They have wished me dead and they have run. They have run far, far, far away. A personal rejection. God is saying they have thrown my goodness back in my face. Now why would they do that? I wonder about us. I wonder if we see sin in those personal terms. Now if we could see sin as spitting in the face of our loving Heavenly Father, we might not be so careless. Verse 3 says, the dumb animals know better. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand the donkey. Even a donkey knows what's good for it. He knows where it can get food and shelter. You see how crazy it is to push God out of your life. God who is creator of all things, whose power upholds the whole universe. The one who has the final say over everything. The dumb animals, they know who provides their food. That they know where to go. Surely we can do better than the donkeys. But you see, that's what sin is. Every time we sin, we're saying we want nothing to do with God. God with all the power. God with all the goodness. We're saying we don't want him in our lives. Where do we think we can go with that? You see, sin, every time we sin, there's a sense in which our hearts are saying to God, I don't want you to love me. I don't want your care, your protection. I want nothing to do with it. I want to push you away and I want to manage by myself. Of course, we don't see it like that, do we? Maybe we need to learn a lesson from the dumb donkeys. To refuse life is crazy. Secondly, to refuse life is tragic. Verse 4. You know, when somebody gets confronted with tragedy, personal tragedy, there's a, a knock on the door or that's that phone call when suddenly the whole world spins and darkens. In those moments, there is often a, 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 a sound that is torn out of the aching heart. There is a cry of grief. And that's how verse 4 begins. Woe. Alas. It's a, it's a declaration of deep sadness. And it comes from God. It's not strictly correct to speak of God as grieving. And yet as much as we can understand what God is like with our human limitations and the the confines of our creaturely language itself, God grieves. What have they become? Now verse 4 describes the people, not as the people see themselves, but when you get rid of the pretense and all of the the kind of false assurances, when you strip them back, you get a God's eye view. And the beginning of verse 4 is a God's eye view of the people. Sinful nation. A people whose guilt is grace, is great. There's a heaviness over them. They're, they're, They're bent over with the weight of their guilt. A brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. God's heart, as it were, God's heart is aching in sadness. He's saying, what have you become? What have you done to yourselves? How did you get like this? I wonder if we realize how it is that God sees our sin. He does see. He sees everything, doesn't he? He sees right under the skin. He sees every secret thing. He sees underneath the the outward show of niceness and coping. He, He looks right into the heart. And he sees what we look at on the internet in private. He hears the bitterness we hold to those around us, things we wouldn't ever say out loud. He, 
He knows the selfishness. He sees. He sees every part of it. And when he sees, he grieves. Now, we were made in his image. We're made for purity and for purpose and for happiness. And we've smashed the image. And every sin is another moment of, of grinding the fragments of the image under our feet. God sees and he aches. What have you done to yourselves? How did it get like this? Of course, he knows. Second half of verse 4 gives the causes. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. The Holy One of Israel. It's Isaiah's favorite way of describing what God is like. It it, it comes right out of his call in chapter 6. When we get there, we will see him confronted with the holiness of God. God who is totally other, who is absolutely different to us, mind-meltingly different. God is God. And he is morally pure, white, hot, purity. Isaiah sees him and he is undone because of his sin. But he's also holy in mercy. That's why Isaiah so often calls him the Holy One of Israel. You know, if I were to get in my car and drive at 100 miles an hour into a brick wall, I would not break any laws of physics. I would demonstrate them. I would show the laws of physics that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And the force with which I hit the wall will destroy the car and probably me. That's obvious, isn't it? But the same is true in the spiritual realm. God is God. He is always God. And when we forsake him, when we spurn him, when we turn our backs on him, we ruin ourselves. All we do is, by turning from God, we just demonstrate that he is good. And then there is no goodness apart from him. Apart from him, forsaking him, spurning him, Our lives twist and our actions harm and our guilt just builds and it builds and it builds. And if you run from God, you find yourself corrupted, doing evil and full of guilt. You know what it looks like to forsake God. Now, if we're to forsake a friend, we just get on without them. We ignore them. We don't call them. We block them. We we just move on without them. But the unmovable spiritual reality is that when we forsake the author of life, we've chosen against life. And when God sees us, he grieves. To refuse life is tragic. And then thirdly, to refuse life is not necessary. Imagine you go to your doctor and there's a, there's a grave look on her face. You kind of have an idea of what's coming. And my... Um, my brother-in-law's a doctor. He trained as a doctor. And at one point in his training, he, he, he had to resit some exams. And, and he said that um, they'd just all been trained on how to break bad news. And he had to go and see one of his tutors who had to tell him that he hadn't passed his exams. He had to resit them. And he said the tutor uh, followed the textbook in how to break bad news because that's what doctors are trained in, isn't it? They're trained to give bad news. So imagine you go to your doctor and you know it's not going to be good. The doctor says, I'm, I'm just really sorry we've done these tests. Uh, you have this, this rare condition. It is a, it's a fatal condition. It's a lethal condition. And, and yet we have got this medicine. Now, if you take this, this one tablet every night before you go to bed, then, then you'll be okay. But, but if you miss it, even just one night, if you miss it, then, then you're probably going to die. But if you take it, you just carry on life as normal. Just one tablet each night. Would you bother? 
Of course you would, wouldn't you? You'd set alarms and reminders every day to make sure you always remembered to take your medicine. Isaiah's imagery is more graphic than that. Verse 5. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured and your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and bruises and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. You know, to imagine a person who's badly beaten, they're, that they're bleeding everywhere, they've got open wounds, they are slashed and bashed. But the point isn't about how badly they're wounded. No, they are badly wounded. They're sick to the heart. The point is, why aren't they doing anything about it? There's a doctor there. There's a medical team all around them. But the wounded person is refusing help. They won't let their their wounds be clean. They won't let the bandages be applied. They won't take the medicine. Why, Why won't you take the medicine? You're in a bad way. Yeah, of course you're in a bad way. But there is help. It's just there. Why... Why wouldn't you be helped? The image shifts in verse 7. The spiritual condition of the land is described as suffering a massive invasion. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you. They're there. They're just watching their whole lives crumble in front of them. Daughter Zion, the precious people of God, daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Those three images to describe their fragility. They are hanging on by a thread. It's like somebody dangling over a precipice, holding on by their fingertips, and their hand is beginning to slip, and there's a hand held out to them. Just take the hand. Why why wouldn't you take the hand? Why won't you be healed? The craziness of refusing life, the tragedy of refusing life is just not necessary. Why would anyone not take the medicine? Why not? I remember once sitting with a man who was plunging himself into ruin. He knew he was doing it. And every day, stepping further and further away from God. And in effect, he said to me, I've gone too far and there's no way back. We can feel that, can't we? I don't know if you've heard of the term cyberchondria. I was reading about it in a BBC article. It's medical anxiety caused by researching symptoms online. Apparently, 50% of us would rather look online than go and see a doctor. And the problem is, the doctor says, that the article says, internet searches tend to offer the worst case scenario. I, I did something like this the other day. I had this medical symptom, which was a bit embarrassing, so I won't share it with you. Um, but, a, but a kind of quick search on the internet among the options gave a an incurable disease as an option. And so I thought, well, I must be dying. I'm dying of an incurable disease. And there's no point seeing a doctor because the doctor can't do anything. It was a false alarm. <laughs> um, but we can do that, can't we, with just the mess in our lives, the, the sin in our hearts, the impending certainty of our own end. And we think, there's just no way back for me. We, we do the assessment ourselves. We say, I'm too far gone. I'm too long gone. I can't see hope. I'm too trapped in my condition. And and our sinful patterns of behavior can do that. We get wrapped up in a web of self-deceit where we we go from denying that anything is wrong to despairing that anything can help. Let's go to a doctor. 
Let's have a spiritual checkup with the Almighty. Verse 5 says, yes, it is serious, but it's savable. Take the medicine. Will we take the medicine? To refuse life, it's not necessary. Now, verse 9 at the end of our passage is where hope bubbles up. It's in verse 9 where we get a signpost toward the medicine that we desperately need. Verse 9 begins by saying, Unless the Lord Almighty, that is the Lord of armies, the one who commands the powers of heaven, God who can do whatever he pleases, unless there is a God like that, unless there is a God who can save the unsavable, yeah, then we're hopeless. But there is a God and he is the Lord Almighty. Unless there was a God like that, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Now, those were ancient cities, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were famous for their wickedness. Oppression and cruelty were celebrated. And the sound of the suffering that they caused, it reached the ears of heaven. And God hates sin. He's not indifferent to the way that people break each other and ruin his world. And he will bring judgment and And for those two cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the fire of God's anger fell from heaven and swallowed them up whole. And Isaiah says that is exactly what all the people deserve. That would be justice to become like Sodom and Gomorrah. But God is God and he leaves some survivors. And and what is it that makes a difference between the survivors and Sodom? It's not their behavior. Everyone deserves the same from God in verse 9. What makes the difference is the breaking out of God's mercy. And the mercy of God is massive, not just for them. Not just for them. You see, this passage we're looking at this morning, it's really reflecting off Israel's national anthem. There was a song given to the nation through Moses. You can read it in Deuteronomy 32. It's a song that begins by calling on heaven and earth. It talks about God's fatherly care of the people and the people's rebellion against him. And then at the end of the song, it says, The Lord will vindicate his people and relent. And God's own voice breaks into the song. And he says, See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring life. I have wounded and I will heal and no one can deliver out of my hand. And then the song ends by looking to all the nations of the world and saying, rejoice you nations, all the nations with his people. God Almighty had planned of long, long ago, long, long ago, planned for his mercy to come through this people to all the peoples of the world. Verse 9 is saying God is going to keep his promise. He's going to keep his promise for the sake of those who will be in need of his mercy. He will keep his promise for the sake of those of us who are gathered here today. See, what happens when people don't choose life? No, for us, here right now, Jesus has offered life. He calls us to follow him, to have him as king of our hearts. And we can refuse him. And we can refuse him by simply not becoming a Christian. And Jesus says all who believe in him have eternal life. But if we don't believe in him, we're not choosing life. And maybe that's where you are this morning. No, you just know, you know in your heart of hearts that you've not given your life to Jesus. It might be that you're not even that sure of what it means. 
I would love to talk more with you about that. Please do come and speak with me afterwards. And yet, now those of us who are believers, we can still refuse life. Now every time we do what the Bible says not to, every time we sin, every slip and slide through temptation into disobedience are moments when we are not choosing life. So what happens when people don't choose life? Well, Isaiah 1, 1 to 9 shows that people like that are met with the appeal of a father. Now, when God speaks in Isaiah, the very first word of God's speech in the original language is the word children. That's the first thing God says, children. He he positions himself as he speaks. He wants to be heard as a father calling to children. It is the appeal of a father's heart. On um, Vancouver Island in Canada, it gets very cold. And um, a group of friends who went went fishing one night, they they headed out for a very um, remote area. It was only accessible on foot. They had to trek for a while to get there. One of the men brought his young son with him. And then they they were fishing for salmon. It was a point where the fast-flowing river raced out into the icy ocean and very dangerous. They had to be careful because if you fell, if you fell, you'd be quickly swept away into the freezing sea and you'd drown or you'd freeze before help could come. Uh, the father warned his son to be careful, tried to keep watch over his son, but you know, the boy caught a big fish. In his excitement, he, he slipped and he fell into the freezing waters. Now, immediately, the father kicked off his boots and he went in after him, and his friends tried to stop him. His friends called after him and said, there's nothing you can do, you cannot save him. But the man broke free and he jumped into the water. And his last words were, I don't want him to die alone and afraid. See, he'd he'd worked it out. He'd calculated that the boy would die of hypothermia first. And that's how they were found the next day, their bodies uh, wrapped together, the boy held by his dad. That's a father's heart, isn't it? The heart of a father. Just gives a tiny sense, a tiny sense of the heart of God appealing to those who don't choose life. But God is not a man who cannot save. Now in verse 9, what is the difference between survivors and Sodom? And we have to ask it about ourselves, make it personal. What will be the difference between you and those who go to a lost eternity? It's not going to be good behavior. It's not going to be what you deserve. It will only be the mercy of God. The great Sovereign mercy of God. God who reaches out to those who run from him. He reaches out to those who have chosen hell with every fiber of their being and they're racing to destruction. The Lord Almighty will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And his appeal of mercy comes to us and it comes to us when we refuse life. And this appeal is deep. Deep, it goes deeper and deeper and deeper. You see, in verse 5 and 6, it describes our, our situation in sin. Our situation is beaten and struck and injured and bruised. And the appeal, what, why didn't you take the medicine? Well, what is the medicine? The medicine is God's mercy. And as we read on through Isaiah, this medicine becomes more clear. When we get to Isaiah 53, a passage that clearly looks forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus and what would happen to him on the cross. 
Well, in that passage in Isaiah 53, probably familiar to us, it picks up the ideas of verse 5 and 6. It repeats the words, the rare words that are used here and there, creating a link between these passages. I'll put the passage from Isaiah 53 with the repeated words highlighted. As it looks forward to Jesus' coming and his death on the cross, it says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. You see, the Lord in mercy left some survivors. He did it because he was faithful to his promise to send the Christ. In Christ, the Christ in whom the mercies of God abound more and more and more. Uh, Our medicine, all of our healing, it comes through the saving work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who took our illness and our rebellion and and he he took the punishment that we all deserve. Took it on himself. Crushed so that by his wounds we might be healed. Jesus Christ dresses himself in our bruises. To bring us healing. By his wounds. That's our medicine. By his wounds. That's where we find mercy. What happens when people don't choose life? Well the appeal of God. Mighty God. The Father God comes to us today. To refuse life is crazy. To refuse life is tragic. But to refuse life is not necessary. Because there are oceans, oceans of mercy open to us in Jesus Christ. Mountains of mercy. He promises us life, a full life, the maximal life, eternal life. Life with God forever and ever and ever. He promises our full restoration through his destruction. And we deserve nothing from him, but he gives everything to us. Holds out the medicine. Will we take it? Now, why would we stay away from the salvation provided for us in Jesus? Now, let the appeal we've heard work into your heart today. Today, choose life. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Let's just take a moment just to reflect quietly about how we will respond to the Lord's appeal now.